You've entered a cave filled with spores, molds, and fungus. A bus full of young ladies has just arrived at the Army Airfield, and they're ready to dance. And James C. Van Dyke's terrier, Cappy, is drinking water from the pulp of a cactus. Wanna sip? Oh, hi everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Spores, Molds, and Fungus, the podcast where we talk about things we can't stop thinking about. And after you listen, maybe you won't be able to either. I'm your host, Chris, and also with me, as always, is... Elizabeth. Today, we're going to talk about the desert. We're going to speak about the desert today. I'm excited. One thing that I think is interesting when it comes to the desert is it's a place that my mind often goes when I am preoccupied or stressed out. Do you feel that way? Uh, well, hey, wait. do you feel that way? Wait, before do we you talk feel like about... Me? Oh, sorry. Before we talk about the desert... No, <laughs> I, I know we're going to talk about the desert, but I also wanted to say that since our last episode, I realized that you and I obsess over things or think about things in very different ways like yeah i think so too you think about things very specifically with mm-hmm. a lot of detail and i go like kind of broad and abstract so i feel like we're gonna see that more today do you um, think well maybe we're gonna hear it more or see it visualize it more do you yeah. when you listen to podcasts do you um envision what the person looks like. Or of do you, course you, I do. Do you imagine them in the room talking where you're yeah, like, and lately oh, that's I've had to listen to, uh, so-and-so. I, when, I, when I listen to podcasts recently, I think about them on Zoom or on Skype or on whatever on platform Zoom. they're using. Oh, where they're like... Yeah, where they're seeing hey, the other host or the you? guest. I miss you. I wish we could hug. Exactly. Um, but, anyway, you, but when you see, but when you read the word orange, you don't see the orange, you see the word. I see the word, yeah, that's So true. if you were reading a podcast transcript, would you just see the words... Or if someone was reading the podcast transcript to you, would you just see the words? Well, that's different because that's like reading a play where you you envision the two characters or whoever they are. I mean, that's if someone different. was that's reading... different from just thinking about abstractly the word orange. Well, Like when I think of the word desert, if we want to bring it back to that. When why? I think of the word desert, <laughs> I do see the word desert right. but in it, my I mean, head. Yeah. And then I think about like the stereotypical desert, which is like the vast dunes so you see vast dunes when you think of the desert i don't think yeah. of vast dunes i, I think, think of vast dunes. joshua tree i only think of joshua tree when i hear the desert hmm. either that or i think of death valley maybe that's because the only two deserts i've been to could be i was going to say that if you if you read out loud a transcript of a podcast it would just be a podcast but maybe more monotone and performed, well, how like is- poorly performed, where it's like, that's funny, that's interesting. <laughs> I was having coffee the other day, and I ran into so-and-so. Yeah, that's not, well, how are you delivering you it? Hear if you the, deliver you hear it the, as a podcast, then you the You hear podcast- the page flips. Oh, you perform, like, fully, you, I wonder if you could convince someone where you're like, you could this is actually an episode of How Did This Get Made, but it's a, it's a transcription from an earlier episode. It's like a yeah, facsimile. Yeah, we're reading it. Yeah. Right. Okay, well, let's talk about the desert. We just talked about a little bit why we obsess over the desert. I guess I my first real experience with the desert would be like 2002? One? No, 2002? I don't know. I don't remember when it was. I was Maybe not aware of your existence. I, I went to Joshua Tree. That was the first desert I went to. And there's just something so specific and different 
about the desert in terms of landscape. I grew up in the, I don't know what you call it, the short grass plains of Texas. And when, I grew up in the short grass plains of Texas. <laughs> I think you grew up in a suburb, but. Yeah, I did. I grew Yeah. Okay. But in terms <laughs> in of geography, farmhouse. and I've lived in Los Angeles <laughs> for so long, but you go out to the desert and it seems very different. Um, well, I think one reason I obsess over the desert or think about the desert a lot is that it feels like the ultimate escape for really weird misanthropic people like misanthropic yeah like people who are not interested in engaging with humanity oh yeah that there, there's a loneliness to it yes it feels like a place one would go if one were like you and i are at times where we're like when i want to die i want to be alone right in a rocky area with a sunset i don't want to be in a busy city and like when I get stressed out, maybe that's what you're talking about, about the desert calming you down. Like when I get right, stressed out, I'd rather be somewhere that's almost inhospitable to life right. than like, like an, a grassy yeah. meadow in Sweden. Right. Surrounded by people. No. Right. It, there's or almost a flowers. level of, uh, what? You don't want flowers around no, you when you die? just the same. That's good to know. I mean, we're married, so. Don't give me I'll flowers. I'll be like, boys, no flowers for mom, okay? She was very specific. Listen to episode two of the podcast, Okay. <laughs> We recorded that six months ago. <laughs> oh, that's dark. <laughs> Stop. I remember what she sounded like when she said that. I, I, there's a level of asceticism to the desert. How about that? Yes. If you want to go grad school. Sure. Right? Where I, I often say when I'm very stressed out, I'm just going to go walk into the desert. Yeah, you've said, and, I can't count how many times you've said right, that. Right, that's what I'm like. And that's kind of my fuck it. Right? right. Where it's like, I oh, fuck it. Where it's like, I'm just going to walk into the desert. After this, I'm just going to walk into the desert. And that implies, like, it's just dying from the elements. Or surviving, but doing so only through some kind of gridded, internal, yeah. individual will that has nothing to do with community, society, government. And it's not necessarily enjoyable. No. It's almost like there's a self-punishment to yeah, it. Yeah, there's a masochism to the desert. Probably just for us. I would say that that's a no, very No, because Western I've done thing. a lot of reading over the past oh, week, and I'm going to tell you there's a lot of masochism. In the desert. There's a lot of masochism in the desert. Welcome to masochism, spores, and fungus. I, okay, so let's go into our deep dives. Okay, let's do it. So, you know, not every topic on this podcast is going to be novel and interesting on the surface level, I have to say. What are you talking about? No, where it's like, we, we just did missing people and it's like, ooh, missing person, what happened to them? This is the desert. I do want to say, actually, asterisk, that... I feel bad for implying that young Paul's parents fed him to the pigs last week. I don't. <laughs> they might, might not have. They were very upset by the implication, not not of, of our podcast, but they were many decades outraged. Ago. You should have seen the letter. <laughs> many decades ago, when that story started going around, they were, for obvious reasons, very upset. So I, I don't want to cast aspersions on people. Well, it's kind of like the, ding don't know. the dingo ate my baby lady. Where that yeah, ended up being true. Exactly. Like, right? I, I, he, I don't want people to think ill of... Um, don't think ill of Paul's parents, of Paul's please. parents. We and don't and know I where do he have is. the sensitivity that those were real people that, that disappeared, so... Me too. I think we represented them well. I mean, I... I'm sorry. I, Paul might be out there. He might be listening. He could be. He might be like, that's right. Okay. So, back to what I was saying, which was that the thing that I'm obsessing with as I did research on the desert. There are missing people in the desert, but I'm not, I didn't go near that. 
What I what I'm obsessed with is again, let's go back to Joshua Tree. And there's some crazy stuff that's happened to Joshua Tree, the missing persons. Graham Parsons died at the Joshua Tree Inn, right? And then his friends tried to burn his body and then they messed that up and the hikers found him. Very grisly. Trust me, I've gone down that road. But the road, speaking of the road, is Highway 62. Highway 62 to me is really interesting because it cuts east forever. And it's just this kind of utility road. There's the interesting part that goes through Joshua Tree. Well, first it goes through Yucca Valley, which is a great name. And then it goes through uh, Joshua Tree. And then it goes through 29 Palms, which is an even weirder town. And then it just goes for 150 miles east to Arizona before it ends. And there are signs by 29 Palms and then Arizona on the other side where it says, be forewarned, you're going into an area where there are no stops. Like there's no gas, there's no food, there's nothing. Did you and I drive on this road? We've driven on this road a bunch because it's what people take in to go to Joshua Tree. Right. And I had a neighbor named Don when I lived on Venice Beach. D-O-N? Don. Yeah, Don. And uh, Don was uh, deaf. And he kind of, he talked like this. And he was my neighbor when I lived on Venice Beach. And, and he would say, hey, if I ever get too loud... Uh, you just knock on my do- on my wall there, and I'll I'll turn the TV down. I gotta listen to it loud because I can't hear it. And when I moved in, he uh was immediately run over by a truck on his bicycle. No. Yes, he was run over by no. a truck. <laughs> That's right. I forgot. That. Yeah. No. And he was wearing. <laughs> I was wearing my orange vest. Yeah, ran me over with a truck. He was okay. He survived, though. He I survived. Mean, he wasn't okay. He but- survived, but he was gone for the first six months I lived on Venice Beach. And he was living with his sister. But then he came back and then he listened to his TV very loudly. But uh, when I moved out, uh, he said, well, you know, you're going to regret it. You know, you don't want to leave. You live right on the ocean. I've never done that. I didn't think I would. I moved out here and I helped build all those turnpikes out in Yucca Valley. And for some reason, that phrase stuck with me because <laughs> I never pictured people building a turnpike. Yeah, I, I'm trying to envision what a turnpike is and i looked this up i can't really tell you what a turnpike what the specific word turnpike refers to it's like a spur road but like a big one like a highway essentially and it comes from the term here we go down the rabbit hole which is uh when you reached the pikes of an area like the outward spikes that they carved out of wood you had to turn around so it would Wait, be like the turn. What do you mean when you reach the You would pikes. reach the pikes, the spiked fence that was protecting some village oh. or town or whatever. So it's kind of like reached, beyond the pale. Well, that would be a you to go beyond the pikes, but most people would turn around at the pike. Sure. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. it's a turnpike. So turnpike. So That's kind of where it comes so from. So wait, so it's the road that you would have to build to turn away from the pikes? No, it was a road that would go a certain amount of... It would you take this turnpike, which is you go all the way down the road, and then when you get to the pikes, turn, turn. around uh, because if you go through the pikes, you're dead. Oh, so it stops. <laughs> right. Okay. Right. I think it maybe that's what it is. Where there's so like a it, so terminus it stops to the road, and then you and then you turn, or does it? Or do... you have to go onto a different road now. Okay, sure. But yeah, Highway yeah, yeah. 62 goes 
all the way to Arizona and then it stops. Got it. Okay, so Highway 62, there used to be an old Highway 62. You can go look at the old Highway 62. You have to find it. You have to get off Highway 62 and find the overgrown asphalt. And it crumbles until it becomes nothing. And Highway 62 is not hidden. It's a big sign off the 10 where you can exit highway onto Highway 62. But this idea of old Highway 62 is interesting because it's like that's where the ghosts are of people who have driven by things. Well, this can I just note oh, no, please. here? Well, I just want to I just want to note here that I my one of my theses, one of my many theses about the desert that we're going to get to, is that the desert is also inherently about nostalgia. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I think the desert is an is an inherently nostalgic place. Why? Well, we'll get to it. Well, later. we'll get to it. Um, but yeah, it's interesting that you're saying this about old old roads that are no longer there. I thought you were going to say the desert's full of ghosts. Uh, I feel like that might be possible. That too, probably. Even if they're just projections of your own mind, I feel like everything you think in the desert is more vivid because there's more space and you can only really hear your thoughts. Yeah, How about the that? desert is a, I'm in a, a weird mood today. reflecting pool for your own soul. That's why you see mirages. It just comes from your own imagination. So old... Old Highway 62 crumbles into nothing. You know, there's old railroad tracks because it used to be a Santa Fe stop on Highway 62. There used to be one, so we'll get to that in a second. Okay, so current Highway 62, it goes through Joshua Tree, which is fine, and then you turn off for the National Park, and there's funky stuff there, and, you know, there's Pioneer Town and all this stuff everybody knows about, and the old TV set that turns in, turned into a bar. And, and then you go to 29 Palms, which is like, hey, you want to go a little farther, like... Uh, 29 Palms is a weird place. Right. And I have a, the, a story from a friend, which is she was with friends and they went out to camp and they went to 29 Palms and they went into a thrift store and the woman working there thought they were from a different country because of the way they talked. And they <laughs> were great. only like 30 miles or 40 miles from the 10 freeway that you take into Los Angeles. Well, we went to a thrift store in 29 Palms. Yeah. We went to a few actually. We went to like three. Right, and that's a big, it was a big military town. Yes, it was. So that leads me to this next thing, which is that if you go on Highway 62, the part that I think is interesting as I kind of drilled down was this 150 miles of nothing. Well, there's literally nothing. And you can't get gas. There are barely any houses out there. Uh, there's a couple, I don't know, like granite refineries or something you know what it's like nothing yeah and nothing is incorporated there's no town there's really just nothing and if you're driving through and i've done a little bit of this because i went off-roading out there into on old mining roads which also was fascinating to me which is like uh like abandoned stuff we kind of talked about this last time but like yeah. abandoned things. The, the, the desert kind of just feels abandoned from the very beginning, right? <laughs> this is what I'm saying. It's inherently a nostalgic place. Because it's nostalgic for the ocean, you know, that used to be there. <laughs> it's sad where the desert's like, yeah. oh, we miss it, the ocean. Exactly. Oh, man. Again, the desert is played by Owen Wilson here. <laughs> oh, man. I miss the ocean. That's oh, not a very good desert. one. You could we're do not... a better impression than oh, that. Oh, hey. I, I, I'm the desert. I, hey man i'm the desert i miss water okay so you drive down highway 62 into 150 miles of nothing there's one dot on google maps and it is called rice california 
R-I-C-E, Rice, California. All that is in Rice, California now is an abandoned gas station. It's just a gas station. It clearly was some sort of service station at some point in time, and then at some point in time it wasn't. All that's left is really the roof and some of the structure. You can see it on, um, like, satellite view. Yeah, you can go down, and there's pictures of it. If you look at Rice, California, you're going to find this thing. So Rice also has this thing called the shoe fence. Well, it used to be called the shoe tree. There was a lone tree out in Rice, California, which was, again, nothing. Just a sign that says Rice. Did anyone ever live there? Yes. Okay. So that's what we're going to get. That's why there's a sign. And that's why there was a service station. Sure. That makes sense. So there was a shoe tree, which is the only thing left. And people would go and they'd tie their shoes to this tree in the middle of nowhere. I don't know why. Probably different reasons for everybody. They cut the tree down and then it became the shoe fence and people would tie their shoes to the fence. What? So no one knows why the shoes thing started happening? No. Is it like the Paris locks or like... I don't know what that is. Oh, what? yeah, 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 yeah. No, I, I know. Yes. Are. Everybody has their own personal reason for leaving their shoes on Although, this listen, fence. here's the interesting thing to think about. Because like, okay, the Paris locks, if you think about that, you're you're putting a lock on there and you're like, our hearts are locked together because we came on a tourist trip, right? Mm-hmm. But like leaving your shoes someplace is interesting because... It implies that maybe you walked into the desert. Your journey is over. Yeah. <laughs> right. Where you're like, this is where I took off my shoes, which represent civilization. And I just went towards those white hills. Right. And I am bones. I'm bleached bones now. I don't think it's that dark and existential and for people. Bones. I think they're just like, I'm going to Arizona. And I thought this is a fast way. We got to put our shoes on the tree over there with all those shoes. So do you think people bring extra shoes with them to do that? Or do you think they Specifically take... to go out? Like, yeah, you like, think that's a destination for someone? These are my shoes that I'm putting on the shoe tree. Yeah. Like some, what if someone, you mean like they're, they're planning just to go to the shoe tree? Yeah, it's not well, like, yeah. oh, look, there's a shoe tree. We, or we're driving out to Arizona. <laughs> no, I don't think it's probably, I probably don't think it's I'm going to take accident. off my shoes right here and I'm going to put them on those tree. It is illegal to drive with no shoes. Just to I've done listening. it before, though. Oh, my God. It feels God. safe to me. I'm glad you're here, man. It does feel safe. Because you can really feel the gas pedal. You can really feel the gas pedal. Everybody's driven without shoes on. Okay. But no, so... I don't think everyone has. Everyone. If you drive out to Rice, I don't think anyone went out there specifically to put shoes on the tree or the I fence. I think they did. The subsequent fence. And then what do they do? Turn around? Yeah. And then go to 29 Palms pictures. to a thrift shop? I bet you anything it's an Instagram Oh, like an Instagram influencer? Yeah, if oh, I fuck. search this on Instagram no, right now. No, don't do that. It's going to ruin everything for okay, me. Okay, I won't search No, 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 no. I want... No, you should because I want to see... Okay. I mean, I'm I mean, maybe morbidly I'm wrong. curious. Okay. Shoe fence. Periodically, they take the shoes down. I don't know why. But they just... Sometimes you go to um, Google Maps right now and the shoe fence is fairly empty but then you look at pictures from you know a few years ago like 2012 and the shoe f- the shoe fence is brimming with shoes there are um oh, over 500 posts on <laughs> of the shoe fence on instagram of the shoe fence uh i hate it but oh i guess it's one of the locations of fast five what the Oh, yeah, no, so, so they shot Fast they Five shot out Fast there. Five. So they shot some uh, of so Fast people, Five People know that it's there. Some people, but yes. It, it, but but I, it's not I, a, like I'm a 10,000 posts. It's over 500, 500 which is something. 500 is like, okay. Rice, California. Oh, boy, some of these pictures are... Yeah, I'm sure. Oh, no, look at this one. 
Oh, God. Just it's just people the, dancing by the, the shoes. totally artificial manufactured experience that is 2020 Some of them seem existence. genuine, though. One person said, like, stumbled across these shoes. Well, that's what you want. <laughs> <laughs> said, like, they need shoes. Oh, man, I need some shoes. Yeah, these one are person great. says, what in the world? Question mark, exclamation mark. That's great. Look at these dried out converses. Anyway, shoe tree, shoe fence. Um, I started digging... I started digging into rice, and rice was uh, rice was incorporated, not incorporated. Rice was, I guess, created in 1914. It's the year my grandfather was born, and it was because it was an no old, one cares. Yeah, no one gives a shit. No one gives a shit about anything we're talking <laughs> about, kidding, so it doesn't I'm matter. Kidding. Might as well just say anything. <laughs> I remember my granddad, just barely. It was an old Santa Fe stop for the railroad. Doesn't go through there anymore, obviously. Was there a mining town there? Well, there are mining towns around there. There's one in the national park where you can go see the old mine. And there were mines, obviously, across the highway where I went off-roading. This area is managed by the Bureau of Land Management. BLM. The BLM. The BLM, uh, the BLM you can go shoot guns on that property. Like anything you want. Yeah, it's interesting. I ran across this in my research where there's a lot of people right now who are, who have been living in, um, say, campers um, in various areas of the desert, and they don't consider themselves to be camping. Do you know what I mean? It's like they live in- This is my house. A camping. Yeah, exactly. And they're not disrupting the community during coronavirus. They're staying in their camper, maybe going out for a hike or something, coming back. And they've actually been starting to get kicked out of certain towns in the desert like desert-ish towns that are cracking down on tourism because they don't want coronavirus to be brought there. So like Moab out in Utah has started kicking people off um, any Get out Moab of our desert. land saying you're you're officially you're camping and we're not allowing camping oh, here during no the camping. pandemic. Right. But people are like, no, this is where we live. So there's a lot of Reddit posts saying like, anyone know some BLM land that I can get to and, and live on without anyone finding me? Like establish residency? Or just, no, no, just no, be like there and they're not going to look for you. We could move our camper there and nobody's going to look Because there's going to be us. like a, a BLM ranger. Exactly. It's like one guy per 2,000 square exactly. miles. Exactly. And there's like a whole Reddit community. But it's funny because when I started, this is just me being stupid. When I started digging into this, I thought it was... I thought it was standing for Black Lives Matter. Of course you did. So I was like, Black Lives Matter BLM. land? What is that? I was really confused for a while. Then I looked it up. Yeah, it's just basically free land where you can go shoot guns and the government's like, we own this, but I don't, we don't care. Right. Okay, so Rice is in uh, Bureau of Land Management land now. There's old abandoned railroad tracks, which is always interesting to me. The railroad tracks that used to go somewhere and don't anymore. I like railroad tracks that just disappear. They kind of just... Then is it a gone. turnpike of a track? It is not a turnpike. I imagine they went to Los Angeles, or at least San Bernardino back in the day. I imagine they went to Los Angeles. The Santa Fe. This was the Atchison, Topeka, and the Santa Fe. The ATSF. I know Atchison, Topeka from a Rufus Wainwright song. Right. There's also the... Is it Glenn Miller? I don't even know who it is. The Andrews Sisters? I don't know. Okay. Speaking of ghosts. Okay. So here's what used to be in rice. This is why it's even a thing. So it wasn't a shoe tree. Okay, so in during World War II, World War II starts. And the first theater in World War II for America 
which was kind of the training ground for America when we finally went up into Northern Europe, was Africa. Because we went into Africa and up into Italy and fought the Italians there. And Germany had established a foothold in Northern Africa. So they needed to train in a desert climate. And so the person in charge of this place was General Patton. And he created the Desert Training Center, which was all of that land. All of that BLM land yeah. became training ground. That makes sense. For World War II when they were about to go um, to Africa. Also where we tested the bomb. No, it was a candidate for the bomb. No, I mean the desert. Oh, well, the, the desert, desert Training Center was actually a candidate for the Trinity test. Ah. They chose to go to Los Alamos in New Mexico, they think, be, in, just to say fuck you to General Patton. Because oh, nobody liked it. They're like, we're not going to give Patton the bomb. We're going to go to New Mexico and do the bomb there. <laughs> and Patton was like, no, f- fine. But he had a great quote, which is, we can't learn to fight in the deserts of Africa by training in the swamps of Georgia. I like it. I really have to read that like George C. Scott. Where he's, we can't train in the... No, every time I think of George Patton, I think of it in George C. Scott's voice. From the movie Patton. What movie? Do you know the movie Patton? <laughs> yeah, that's my joke. <laughs> Great joke. <laughs> we can't learn to fight in the deserts of Africa by training in the swamps of Georgia. They didn't give me Trinity. I guess I was an asshole. Wait, is that part of the quote? No, <laughs> I added the last part. That was dramatic interpretation of Patton. I thought, I thought that was part of the quote. <laughs> okay, so... the. the the Operation Torch was, I guess, when we went into Africa. I, my notes are bad. Whoa. It might even be when we built the Desert Research. Training Center. Okay, so we, we they built this crazy Desert Training Center out there. Tanks, everything, jeeps, barracks, like as, as far as the eye could see. And if you look on Google Maps, you go to Rice, California, you can see the dirt roads. And then if you look in the satellite uh, version, when you turn around, you know, when you drop the little yellow guy mm-hmm. into towards his death, you know, he's always yeah. like, bye. Uh, when he lands on Highway 62 and you look around, it's just dirt roads and they're barely there. But if you look up above in the map version, you can see these highly detailed grids. And that was clearly the, it was this entire town, essentially of military men they were just out there and so and it, i was watching this documentary made by the bureau of land management about Excellent. this which was great you can watch it on youtube it's 45 minutes wow. long these guys would be from you know philadelphia or akron ohio and they're like i'm join the army or they were drafted and they're like here's your first assignment you're going to california and a lot of them were like oh that's where they make movies and then they'd get there and, and they'd get on a bus or they'd know they'd arrive by train. Sorry, they'd get on a train. And they're like, well, sure. look at this desert. And they're like, well, this is our stop. And then they'd get out in the middle of nothing. And, you know, this was nothing. It's nothing now. So in 1942, yeah, it was really nothing. It was really nothing except for the flapping tents in the Mojave wind. Welcome. And, and it was apparently pretty tough. Pre-global so, warming as much, though, so probably still comparable really, temperatures to, like, where we live. Right. 
Maybe. I don't know. I'm not a geologist. I'm not a geologist. Climatologist. Welcome to our podcast. <laughs> I'm not a geologist. <laughs> Just to clarify. Just to clarify. Uh, okay, so off of that that this was this big giant area of men and tanks and they're just like where are we and they're riding home going well, we don't know what this is this is a whole new world for us we're not we don't know they're not making movies out here they decide the idea comes up that they need some they need some lady ladies they need As some accompaniment always happens and this is a you know a nice weekend conversation polite let's let's were you there no i wasn't there (laughs) well how do you i'm 87 how do you know how they treated the women because i watched the bureau of land managed documentary and and i did my research no i did my research so i mean look i'm sure it was not great but i'm sure it was largely okay no 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 so they were lonely so the wife. So they like took a vote to send some women in. No, do they just take? No, them? it was a news story that they were building this place. It would be new, there would be newsreels about the desert training center in movie theaters, and it would be like these boys are out training in the heat before they go off to fight the Nazis in Africa, and they're very lonely. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And if you know any young ladies, no, it wouldn't say that. Uh... So it, it was this Hollywood thing. So speaking of movies. Edward G. Robinson. Are you telling me women went there of their own will because they were like, I have to see the men in the training videos. Well, if you were worried about, you know, sliding people who did stuff, who, you know, from our podcast, there's some uh, pretty amazing um, women who are involved in this organization. Okay. Uh, (laughs) I just don't trust it. I'm not saying the women are bad. I'm saying the impulse to bring women in treats the women like objects. Patriarchal. that's what they did at Yale in yeah. 1969. They were like, do you boys want basketball hoops or women? And they were like, we yeah. vote girls. That's literally how we integrated right. the Ivy Leagues is like a I'm vote of what the boys, what would get the boys more excited. Look, I am, I am hoops not, I am not advocating pussy. for, oh, Jesus. <laughs> Welcome to our podcast. <laughs> hoops. I won't even finish the sentence. <laughs> I'm not advocating for busing women out to the middle of the desert, okay? <laughs> I'm not this is not that. I, there's no bias here for on that, the turnpikes. okay? Put them on that bus. Put them on the Greyhound and send them to the turnpike. You'll no, know you're I, there I, when you I'm run sure, into the wood spikes. I'm sorry I interrupted you. I'm sure there's great people involved in this initiative. So speaking of movies, Edward G. Robinson, the actor, do you know him? No. no. Of course you don't. I mean, I've heard the name. Gangster actor. He's the kind of guy, the guy that we're at what the, was he see, I'll get you a copper. Sure, sure. That impression what largely is... comes from Edward G. Robinson. Give me some movie And his titles. gangster, t- I don't have movie titles. Oh, my God. He, like, they, they did Do versions of him. Do you know him? him? They did in, they did, I know what he looks like. You don't know what he looks like. I can Google He was him. in, well, so can, I could Google the fucking movies he's in and tell you all of them. Jesus. <laughs> no, so Edward G. Robinson, see, I'm Edward, I'm Edward G. Robinson. And my wife, Mrs. Edward G. Robinson, comes up with this idea to bring ladies out for a nice weekend dances and dinner. During the day, you know, in the evening when you get that nice desert wind with the the boys out of training in the desert center. Sure. And they, th- this kind of gets this affectionate name called the USO Desert Battalion. And by the way, like... 
Bing Crosby's going out there. Bob Hope's oh, going out Bing there. Bing Crosby, real moral character. Must be Southern Vermont. <laughs> That's where that comes from. <laughs> Bing Crosby. I'm going out to the desert with a bunch of ladies on a bus. It's so hot out here. Okay, so this was the, this was organized. Yet? No, this was organized by the Hollywood elite. They organized the Desert Battalion. It was a uh, group. It was groups of eighteen to twenty-five year old women from Los Angeles, organized by Mrs. Edward G. Robinson. I have her name somewhere, but she's often referred to like that. I went and got her out of. Uh, I went and got her out of her name. I went and got her name out of the internet. I don't know where it is. <laughs> Okay, Mrs. Edward G. Robinson, 18 to 25-year-old women from Los Angeles, they, they, you'll love this, I know you will, they paid their own way to the camp in order to provide chaperoned company and dancing partners for the troops. God. They didn't even pay for them to go? No. They had to split bus fare. Jesus. Okay, so the Coachella Valley women, like the women who lived in the community out there, I don't know who they were like. I imagine like the... Really intense 29 Palms Yeah, ladies. like the hardened skin. Yeah, mm-hmm. They did not like the service guys coming into 29 Palms sure. and being dicks. Right. So they were like, let's hire some women so the men can be dicks to these other women and not to us. So they were like, we don't like this. So that was another reason for the Desert Battalion. They were like, let's get Hollywood to put something together and we'll get some young ladies on a bus and send them out to the desert. So this was like a photo op. No, but it was also nice. It was nice. They danced. I want to believe that it was nice and they danced. Sure, you I'm did. sure there was some grab ass and this was an uncomfortable weekend for me and I never went back. My name was whoever, Lucy. <laughs> Lucy from Los Angeles. You know, L.A. Lucy. She hated it. No, I'm sure there was some nice romantic moments. Uh, yeah. But this was becoming a problem also with the servicemen because there was nowhere to go. The India right. Women's Club, they... They go meet with General Patton. This is before the Desert Battalion, and they're like, "This is bad. These guys are being assholes in town." And this is a quote. This is the other quote from Patton I have. He said, "If I were you, women, I wouldn't worry if they whistled at me. If I went into the street and they didn't whistle at me, then I'd worry." What? What are you bringing to this podcast? <laughs> It's it's another time. I'm not saying it was great. Again, I'm not endorsing driving women out to the desert. Or insinuating that women in India should be whistled at in order to prove their value. I'm not God. saying that. God. I'm just saying this is what happened. Okay. I'm upset. I pulled the New York Times article about this. USO girls endure desert to dance. They provide link with civilian life from men training in California heat. Spend weekends at post. Mrs. Robinson, wife of film star, is leader of the Desert Battalion. Each girl must pay $5 to board the Army chartered buses leaving the USO headquarters in Beverly Hills for the trip to the Coachella Trading Post, 23 miles into the desert beyond Palm Springs. Each girl carries over her shoulder a battalion bag in which she has her cosmetics, bathing suit, pajamas, and a light robe. An important part of every bag is a large bottle of salt tablets used freely to prevent heat exhaustion. There is a chaperone for every 10 girls, and every girl must be fingerprinted and have recommendations from two reputable citizens. Jeez. She also has to sign a pledge that she will take no liquor, will not leave the USO premises, which would just be walking into the desert, and that she will not repeat any remarks she may hear giving military information. The girls leave for the camp on Saturday afternoon and return home before midnight Sunday. Saturday evening, 
There is a concerted rush of some 2,500 soldiers brought from their camps in trucks, jeeps, peeps, and any other vehicles that might be handy. On the USO... I, got, I didn't get the rest of the JPEG. This is interesting because this is... Well, this is the era where, you know, I, I've, I've taught World War II propaganda posters. And one common theme is that women are going to talk, right? Loose lips sink ships. Loose lips um, sink ships. And you also have, like, you know, you have wanted posters of women's faces that say, like, wanted for murder. She talked. <laughs> You're dead. Well, um, you get vetted by two reputable citizens. That's why, so that's why they were very worried about women being the problem here. Those poor women. Really couldn't trust them. Oh, her name is Mrs. Gladys Lloyd Robbie Robinson, a.k.a. Mrs. Edward G. Robinson. Sure. Okay. So they put this thing together. They dance with the men. Uh, Sorry, scrolling here. Just trying to find the best parts. I'm almost done. Okay. Okay, here's a letter from um, a guy. This is a letter from one of the soldiers at the base. Dear girls of the battalion. Oh, this is a, from somewhere in Africa. November 21st, 1942. Dear girls of the battalion, first opportunity to write, but we have not forgotten you in the least. You have probably read about what our outfit did here. We're in the vicinity of Casablanca. Some of our boys have been decorated and others won promotions during battle. All the boys you knew are not with us, but they had not died in vain. We think of you all for the great job you did for us in the States. We will do a job here unafraid until the final victory with best wishes, your pal, Major <laughs> Headquarters Western Task Force. Okay, so they, 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 these women volunteered for the battalion, not allowed to drink, not allowed to engage in any sexual activity, including kissing. I, uh, I mean, who's enforcing these rules? George Patton. Stop that kissing over there. <laughs> Why aren't you kissing him? If he doesn't want to kiss you, you're the, you should be worried. <laughs> don't make me break you up over, don't make me come over there and kiss you. George Patton. Jesus. They read about it and like, we shouldn't give him the Trinity test. Okay. So, Rice... Army Air Force Training Ground. What was it called? Oh, Rice Army Airfield. This was one of the big places. So Rice. Okay. They would go out and do these dances. There's the barracks. They go out and have fun. USO, Desert Battalion, Bing Crosby, blah, 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 blah. And the ladies are like, I'm glad I spent $5 to come out here. And why did I bring my light robe? I can't kiss anybody. Rice Air Force Base closes in 1944. Right? They don't need it anymore. They're out of the desert. Sure. It becomes a private Air Force base, but then it closes between 1955 and 1958 for unknown reasons. Hmm. It just kind of went to seed, I guess. But it interests me. Yeah, who owned it? I don't know. I couldn't find records of this. And it well, was, I really looked, but it was like, they tr the army said, we don't want it anymore. And somebody said, we do. And let's fly planes off of it. Do you think it was like Howard Hughes? Mm, no, because it was a really small airstrip. It, it looked like an L. There was two runways and they were like a, I guess like a V. Mm -hmm. And if you look at it on Google Maps, you can see the V. And you can okay. go out there and pieces of the airfield are out there. And there are foundations from the buildings. You have to walk way out though. Right. And that is fascinating to me that you can still go out there and 
stand on the airfield where they trained to do this crazy stuff. So Rice Army Airfield, abandoned between 1955 and 1958, gone, blown away by the desert. You can still kind of see the V. It looks like a big baseball diamond. And then you can see the grids of where the barracks were and all that stuff. You can go out there and stand on the pieces of the airfield, which I think are is cool. If you look at it now, you and I did this on Google Maps, the only thing you see is a parked old train that might even be abandoned cars, and someone has spray-painted, word art is dumb, Yeah, <laughs> on a like tanker that. car. Mrs. Edward G. Robinson, Gladys, Robbie, she had a book put together, like a yearbook for the people who were a part of this, the women. It was called The Desert Battalion. It was put together by her. She like wrote essays about what it was like to do all this stuff and it was illustrated by famous cartoonists that's what it says on the book you can see oh yeah cool and the one of the famous cartoonists was walt disney walt disney drew 10 original drawings for this thing that's cool and there's only a few remaining copies some of them go at auction for like thousands of dollars after he was an am- ambulance driver or before okay so when did world war Wasn't II he? happen no i know what are the years of world war Two? 1939 to mm-hmm. 1945 and when was world war one I know when World War One was. He was an was ambulance driver in World War One. Oh, I, th- I he was an ambulance. By this point, he'd made Snow White, so he was right, like a right, big right, deal, right. right? And this was I, the I Hollywood elite. Yeah. Bing Crosby was like, "Hey, Walt, why don't you uh, draw a few drawings for our ladies out here in the dead? They're sweating their sweating their patukas off." I don't know what that is. I made that up. So Walt Disney drew these drawings, but anyway, I think it's interesting that now it's nothing. It's a it's it a couple there's a couple abandoned railroad tracks, a, a a couple abandoned runways, a sign that says rice, a shoe fence, and some old dirt roads that were to barracks. And what's interesting to me in terms of why I obsess about it is it's not like it's some sort of interesting mystery. It's that it's gone. And it's like if you drive out there, like we were talking about the desert giving you space to think and your voice. The desert gives you space to think and your thoughts become louder. I imagine going out there and there's the gas station. I Like, who went to that gas station? And you go out to the old airfield and who flew planes there? And it's like, I, I want to like, I, I want to go out there and stand and, and kind of try to pretend to hear the old music they would dance to in like the sunset in the Mojave. I don't know. That seems very magical and idyllic. I know it's very patriarchal and George Patton is being a dick and the women had to pay their own way. No, I can see the bring magic a toothbrush. in that though. But I just think of the moments where like they're dancing and it's nice. Like say, a, you know, uh, say a young guy is going to go off to Africa and he's dancing with a young woman from Los Angeles who lives there for one reason or another. And they dance to one song and it's very nice and... She says, pleased to meet you. And he says the same thing. And she goes home and has a whole life. And he goes off to war and he lives or he dies. But there's this moment they had out there in the desert. It's like their ghosts are like right out there because there's nothing there. It's not like a uh, sprouts went up or something over there. Like beneath this whole right. foods is Roy Rogers old horse. Like this. <laughs> it's it's. Well, the memories are more present. That's all because, that's left. Yeah. The, that's all that's left and is the memories. there are fewer of them. Right. It's just the memories of this it's place that's gone. It's not as crowded with memories as a city. And that, that interaction people. of a, a soldier dancing with a woman and they're all kind of together dancing to like this a Glenn like Miller tune. An unsolved mysteries segment of lost loves, you know? It was yeah. like, yeah. Major Glenn Morris yeah. once met a young lady named 
Lucy, known by her friends as Los Angeles Lucy. <laughs> and the old man's like, she changed my life. Right. She doesn't know it. She gave me one of her blue shoes. I still carried it. I carried it with me throughout the war, and it kept me grounded. In 1996, Major Morris went back to the shoot fence and placed the blue shoe within the chain links. One day he hopes to find. And then there's the update where it's like, and it's an update, and it just says, says, Major Morris found her grave. (laughs) Major Morris found the grave. He died in 2002. Oh, God. Anyway, I just think it's amazing that you can kind of go out there and I feel like because there's nothing, you can just kind of almost feel and see the ghosts and hear the music and kind of feel the tinge of this kind of human momentary fleeting connection and interaction. Anyway, that's my thing. I like it. Rice, California, the Desert Battalion. Well, I, again, I went went broader and um, maybe more philosophical and abstract so I big surprise s- <laughs> sorry but sorry. i i started i started by thinking about um you know just just looking at different weird desert towns different weird desert culture what is it like to live in the desert i did like a reddit dive on desert life um and i you know i found some interesting things like the the desert town in australia called cooper petty which is completely underground um, and it's Whoa. this old opal mining town. So it was very uncut gems. Like there's yeah, these opals. Opals, opals that are like coming out of the sand and people this live in this underground town. And of course there's like its share of crime too, where it's like Katie was never seen again. Katie after was an never old seen minor, again. But, and it's also in all old mining towns and lore, right? But I, I kind of got bored with that. And then I was looking at other yeah, stuff that. that I got bored with. And then I started checking out books because I'm always drawn to books. And then I started, I, I sort of found or, or hit upon this genre of literature that is like desert literature written by white men who go into the desert angrily and then write these sort of beautiful pieces of, of art that have no genre um, that are like personal essay, lyrical essay, prose poem, nature diatribe. um, Nature diatribe. Geological description. Does it have the the little warning that says, like, I'm not a geologist? (laughs) Just to clarify, (laughs) I'm not a geologist. They did not include those those, uh, disclaimers. But um, And then I became very interested, like, what is it about? And, And it is sort of, I circled in on the Mojave. That's where this sort of literature that I was looking at is coming from. And I was thinking about what is the kind of person that is drawn to this? Why? What's coming out of it? And so there's a couple books um, that I that I was looking at that I want to think more about. And one of them is, I guess the earliest one is from the 1700s. And it's not, it was um, a diary of a missionary priest, Francisco Garces, um, in his travels through Sonora, Arizona, and California. and it's In the 1700s? 1775 to 1776, yeah. Oh, and, wow. Um, I actually hit upon this from a from a interview with the novelist Hari Kunzru, um, who also wrote a book in the desert called, I think it's called Gods Without Men. Hold on. Yeah, Gods Without Men. Gods Without and Men. And he was talking about this book, and I was like, what is this weird thing? So I found a copy of it, and it's it's not like 
fascinating reading, but it's interesting because he's the first literate man to travel through the desert and keep a record of it. The North American desert, of course. The North American desert, yes, sorry. The specific desert. Yes, the Mojave Desert. Obviously, there were many people... And I, literate I, I, in the Western, Western yes, literate. I was about to say Western, li- yeah, what yeah, the Western concept of literacy man. in the Western world. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there were many people living there um, it, for, you know, centuries. But he, he has this sort of um, description of all of these regions he's going to. And it is, it's already of the genre where it's all very descriptive of where he was going. Is this, are um, the, since it's like this time period, are the Tongva living in and around the area? There are people... Because I know the Tongva were really located in Los Angeles, but all through Southern California, there right? There are a lot of tribes he, he goes to. So he's basically, he's a missionary. So he's trying to convert right. people. But there's um, also going to be empresarios and stuff, right? Like Rancho Cucamonga was yes, an entire there ranch. Are ranch. He talks about going to different ranches. Um, I'll just pick out like a random part so you get That's a so sense weird. of it. Like he'll say like... We marched. He, he's with. He's traveling with a few other people, including some native guides, right? Who are oh, wow. who are helping him and who are with him. And at the end of the book, they abandon him, and then he subsequently dies. That, what? We'll get to that. So anyway, what? he says, "Buried the lead." Uh, we marched nine leagues: two west southwest, one west, in order to pass through a gap in a sierra and the river west southwest, with some inclination to the west, and arrived at the pueblo de los Santos Apostoles San Simón y Judas of the Open Nation. Or Coco Maricopa, which is the same, who received us with great joy. There gathered in the Pueblo to see us some ten hundred souls, and they were given tobacco and glass beads. Here the Indians raise all sorts of grain, and regularly two crops each year, whether the season be good or bad. Um, blah, blah, blah. What are they growing? Uh, very, it's well, in the desert. He two talks crops. about... Um, onions? Because I know <laughs> onions grow there. No, <laughs> I, don't know. I know that. I actually was, don't know. I'm an onion but, farmer. But I found this... Um, this itinerary and diary very interesting because it is so descriptive and it's not um, subjective in any way. It's a very objective. Oh, just like I went here, narrative. we did this. I went here, I did this, like we this, met these people, we traded happy. this, they were happy to see us, joy to the Lord. Then I went here, then I went there. He doesn't judge any of the native tribes that he encounters. I couldn't find any judgmental language in there, which was interesting to me that because is wild. we will not see that when we get into like the, the 1900s. But Right. You don't even see that with George Patton where yeah. he's like, if they don't whistle at you, no, they, these guys didn't want glass beads. Yeah, exactly. What's wrong with them? There's no, there's no judgment of the native people's way of life. There's no language indicating that he thinks of them as lesser people. Um, from all accounts, he was a you know wonderful person who really mm. believed in his mission. Now, whether or not you believe in missionaries is another it's thing entirely. Like, makes me think of Jeremy Irons in the mission. Yes, I thought about him a lot actually as I was looking through this. So. I mean, it's a very sad story. It ends um, the same way. I was trying to figure out. (laughs) Yeah, basically. I mean, he did get killed by natives. I don't know the exact story, but the the very end of his narrative is this. Um, I don't know how to pronounce the name of the tribe he's talking about. Bleeding heavily. (laughs) He says they, they brought the... Jaguayapais, Jaguayapais, I'm pronouncing that wrong, to where I was and seeing them so terrified and mistrustful as I likewise was having little faith in the Jama jobs, I instantly told them to have no fear for I was determined to accompany them myself. So he's talking about going with certain members of a tribe who are are, um, 
trepidatious of this other tribe. There's two oh, different tribes. These tribes don't get along. No, they don't get along. And mm-hmm. he's saying, I'll accompany you. Both of your, both tribes. One, I'll accompany this one tribe because they're oh, scared of the other like one, I'll right? be the buffer. Yes. Nothing could dissuade me from this resolution, even though there are encountered as a rule, many difficulties in such an enterprise. Immediately went on ahead one Jagwalapai with two Jamajabs to notify the nation of the former that I was coming to their lands. Anticipating that I should be unable to return to the Jamajabs, I left orders with Sebastian that unless I was there within a few days, he should go down with the Halchedunes to their lands. This Indian, who was the only one that remained still in my service, for the interpreters had returned to the expedition, was unwilling to follow me for all that I begged him to do so. And that's so he the couldn't end. even go with his interpreter. Yeah, that's so he's Whoa. he's by himself, and that's the last line. He's by himself. The, yeah, the, the so last he, line is he, this: this one person who was the only one that was still in my service was unwilling to follow me for all that I begged him. But to did do he so. go with the other tribe? Yeah. Okay, so they're with him. He was the like, only. <laughs> Trust me, guys. And then they Mid- killed him? Yeah. How do they know well, they killed him? Well, I don't know him? that that tribe killed him. I'm unclear on the details of what happened next. Was he killed or did he, he was, die? I believe he was killed. But Whoa. I don't know by whom he may, like the people he was with may have been loyal to him and, and following him or he was following them yeah. or whatever. And then another tribe came in. I don't know the what happened. The detente did not go well. No, he Maybe. did not survive. Do, you, um, do we know where he died? I'm sure I could look it up. I, Is he like buried out there? That's weird. Well, I'm sad Missionary because I bones? had all these notes and my notes uh, got lost. So I don't uh, have my yeah. notes anymore and I don't want to waste time Googling it. But if you're interested, you should Google this guy because he seems fascinating to me. And again, this um, sort of stereotypical or not even stereotypical is not the right word, but this trope of this sole person who's in an almost masochistic way willing to risk their life for some higher cause. Now, in the beginning of the Americas, the cause for many who would travel through the desert would have been a missionary cause, right? Right. Um, Then the cause switches, right? So then you start to have people going out there for a lot of different reasons. You have, it's there's always religious or spiritual quests, individual quests you think Mm -hmm. of a lot. You also think of artistic journeys and quests. Yeah, later. Lots of uh, artists um, going uh, to the desert. uh, What's her name? Paints flowers has the amazing George O'Keefe. George yep. O'Keefe in Taos. Yes. George so you O'Keefe think about there's there's a lot of art connected with. I mean, you think about Marfa. You think about all of these sort of mm-hmm. deserts that attract these artists. You also have people going out there for purpose of natural exploration and hiking, which mm. starts to occur. But then you also have this push that starts to come in in the 20th century of people journeying to develop the area, right? And then you start to get this tension between the individualists who say, this is a sacred place and it should be reserved for lonely wanderers searching for something bigger than themselves. Mm-hmm. And the people saying, this is a beautiful place and we need to build the roads and we need to extend the turnpikes and we need to allow people We need to build all these Yucca Valley here. turnpikes. <laughs> yeah. Well, if I, if, and so then if I'm skipping to my next um, entrant in this genre. Where do you, where would you say that the homesteaders fall in? The homesteaders who went out to the desert, are they rugged individualists or are they like, do you mean like in the journey west, like the Oregon Trail? No, no, like the people, it was one of the last places. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. uh, It was one of the last places where you could go out to the land and if you build a house and you lasted, ah, was it a year? They just give it to you. So if we're thinking about the Bureau of Land Management, I mean, there's a 
a, a very troubling history there where they took the land from the tribes, right? Oh. And then resold it to white settlers cheap. Right. Um, well, this was free. If you went out there and just made right, it. Right, because yeah. we already took it from the people who right. lived there. I don't think the BLM existed when this happened. It did. Oh, I'm in like the sure. 20s or 30s? Or I'm pretty sure those going posters out to live there in the are desert. from the Bureau of Land Management, yeah. if I recall correctly, from Western... There's the guy, There's a guy out there, quick aside, there's a guy out there in Joshua Tree where he claims that he has a sovereign nation. He claims he's well, a sovereign nation with his sure, family and that he has inherited the birthright of the sovereign nation from his dad, who was a homesteader and made it out there. Hmm. And he wears highly intense military regalia in his photos. Oh, that's troubling. And they have their own currency. It is not recognized by the United Nations Shocker. or the United States of America. Shocker. <laughs> but yeah, there is, there is a, back to this nostalgia, I think that when I say the desert is a place of nostalgia, I mean that largely for, for white people or for Western Americans. I don't think that it was originally a place of nostalgia. And I think that the fact that when you're on desert land, you're automatically, you know, you're on land that was stolen. Isn't right? that everywhere though? I mean, if you're going to extrapolate, you're like, we're standing on a, I mean, we're sitting here in Southern California. Santa sure. Fe Railroad bought yeah, this place no. and we're like, we're going to make Claremont. Absolutely. I do think obviously all American land was stolen, but I think that the desert particularly feels to me like a place that used to be reserved, oh, that's the wrong word, used to be inhabited by people who respected the land and understood how to use the land and weren't interested in depleting the land. And again, as I'm saying this, I know that that's everywhere, but... But no, I think when you're saying that, it, what, it, what that reminds me of, well, that makes me think of is I feel like knowing how to use desert land, which seems fairly unforgiving, very unforgiving, yes. requires a high level of expertise. Yes, yes, That you can't absolutely. just pick up a manual and be like, I'm going to go out here and it's like you've got to know and respect what right. it is. right, right. Or exactly. it kills you. Yeah. Well, so the next entrant in my genre is this book called The Desert by John C. Van Dyke um, that was written and published in 1901, written, he says, largely in 1898, but the introduction to the book says that's probably not possible. He probably started it in 1898 and revised it through 1901. Anyway, John C. Van Dyke was an art critic um, who was interested. So here we have sort of the beginning of of this art and like the concept of the artist being attracted to the desert. He was an art critic. He was diagnosed with asthma. And then for some reason, I think because of who he was decided that wandering around in the desert by himself with his small terrier dog. Would God, that's cure miserable him for that dog of asthma. Yeah. Well, he let the dog, dog being like, he had a fuck. horse and he would let the dog ride on the horse sometimes. That's with nice. Him. But still, it's really hot. Where was he from? Where was he going? Orig where was he? New Jersey. From? I think he was from <laughs> the New Jersey. And the terrier is like, ah, he gets a terrier yeah. in New Jersey. And then the terrier um, is like, oh my God. It's pretty intense too, because clearly going to the desert is not good for asthma. Is it, so the, I would imagine the hot, dry climate is what he was thinking. Uh, probably. The, but he then... On his journey, so he wandered the desert for a few years, um, you know, two plus years. This is preceding 1898? No, in the, he left in the early summer of 1898. Oh, so he's um, writing it. He's out there for a while. He's writing 42 years old, university okay. professor, just abandoned it all and, and wow. went into the desert for a 
couple of years. With his terrier. And was and very ill for a large portion of that. Unexplained says it was a fever. Um, what, what Do we think it was asthma? It's I, unclear. I, I got to say that if I went, I'm dumb, but <laughs> precursor, I'm dumb. But if you, <laughs> I feel like if I had asthma, I want to go somewhere where it's hot and dry. Right? I, if I, I, if I yeah. went to Virginia. Because it's, it, oh. I would say the humidity would be good for oh. you. Like that's why you breathe in. A, Maybe a I'm thinking of like a lot of older folks go to the desert because of arthritis relief, right? Yeah, it's better on like the that. joints. Something so like not, that. Not not easier on the lungs. Well, anyway, he he was he was very ill, and it's it's unclear also whether the illness is largely physical or largely mental. Right? Oh wow! Um, because he's clearly at some point. Pretty much out of his mind. He's fringe um, already when he starts. What? He's fringe. He's like, oh, yeah. I'm leaving he's my de- job it's definitely, in New Jersey. People are like, what? He's got, he ta- he literally takes his terrier. His terrier's name is Cappy. Yes. And he rides oh a pony out of, with Cappy. He rides a pony out of the Hemet Valley through the San Gorgonio Pass oh. near what is now San Bernardino and heads oh. southeast. He had a pair of moccasins he had made from a Sioux pattern. Um. He was wearing lightweight clothing. Cappy. Uh, and he just rode into the desert. What was the pony's name? I don't know. So it wasn't a horse. It was a pony. Po- it was a that's pony. A difference, that's a different species. It was a pony. He had already published a book on art theory that was very highly praised um, called Art for Art's Sake. And there was another one called Nature for Its Own Sake. So obviously he was interested also in just experiencing the beauty of the desert. So a lot mm-hmm. of his book becomes about the visual appeal of the desert and how he believes that like the poets who write about flowers and gardens and forests are actually minor poets and we're still waiting for a major poet to uncover what he believes is probably a more difficult and subtle beauty of the desert especially this desert in in the southwest united states and and he's also talking about as he's there he's like this is this is the end of the desert. And this is another theme that you see come up in this kind of literature is people saying, we're in the last gasps of the desert. It's going to start to be civilized. More people are going to start to come through here. This is the last of it. I'm seeing the last of it with my own eyes. People, He's saying that in you know 1900, people are going to say it again in 1960. People say it again in 1980. I'm sure there are people right now saying it in 2020. But, and I think also, I mean, but also there are those amazing pictures where the desert is kind of reclaiming people's backyards in Southern yeah. California, right? So it's going the other way. Yeah, it's fascinating. But I can see that like in 1901 after the Industrial Revolution going, yes. yeah, this is going to take everything. Yeah, there's this constant feeling of this is it. This is the end of it. I'm missing it. I'm almost missing it right now. I'm here right now. I'm seeing the end of it. That was the last sunset that was going to be pure. Whoa. Like this kind of sort of eternal gasp of an attempt to capture something that's slipping away from you. And he becomes sort of obsessed with this. Now, this book, the the racism is um, pretty heavy from the start. I mean, he starts talking about how, like, the I don't even know. Yeah, what, you even know what it's some into term that. that's not good. Yeah, uh, these the people, something the, something. Yeah, the, the which the is na- also the none. native peoples, which he calls something worse than that, uh, could never understand the subtlety of the and they'd been there pinks and purples on the hills, years. and it's like, well, excuse me, and sir. Hey, fuck you, man. Um, <laughs> hey, fuck, hey, fuck you and the pony and cappy you rode in on. Western professor idea that, you know, there's certain ability to perceive beauty that is more refined. I bet. I bet. But, Can I just say, I, my guess is that Cappy fucking hated this guy. Oh, I'm sure he did. Like, Cappy was like, fuck you. 
I lived in New Jersey, you're racist, yeah. and now I'm on top of a pony <laughs> in the desert, and you're being mean to these people. Well, but the the race, if we put the racism on the side table for now, it is a fascinating um, book, and it's it's so old, it's got those um, italic, like the italics that describe what each paragraph is about, which just Whoa. a reading of those is amazing if I'm just reading the italics. The law of change, nature foiling her own plans, attack and defense. Preservation of the species, means of preservation, maintaining the status quo, the plant struggle for life, fighting heat and drought, prevention of evaporation, absence of large leaves, exhaust of moisture. Um, do it's you just think that, fascinating. Do you think that? It, do you think this idea of the desert sucking everything away? like kind of reclaiming it speaks to the idea of this is the last sunset I'm going to see. This is going to be over because it, it's kind of, there's a duality there for me where it, I always think of the desert as kind of timeless and, and uh, eternal. Yeah. Right. But I mean, if you go out there, there's again, almost a, it used a to be ocean heavy. <laughs> Sorry. Cappy doesn't know that. <laughs> Cappy doesn't give a shit, but no, I'm saying that, there's a duality there between the desert being timeless and eternal and then also thinking it's going to be over. I almost have trouble wrapping my head around the idea that the desert is going to be over. Well, okay, so we'll, maybe the next book will help you with that. But I just want to read the italics describing the very end of his book. And I'm not going to read the book itself. I'm just going to read the paragraph topics. And then um, I'll let it speak for itself. The mountain air, the dwarf pine, the summit, the look upward at the sky... The dark blue dome, white light, distant views, the Pacific, Southern California, the garden in the desert, reclaiming the valleys, fighting fertility, the desert from the mountaintop, the great extent of the desert, the fateful wilderness, all shall perish, the death of worlds, the desert, the beginning of the end, development through adversity, sublimity of the waste, desolation, and silence. Good night to the desert. Whoa. It's the end of the book. Topics. Um, I'm That's very, much very into that, obviously. Just that is very poetic. It is. I mean, it, again, it's troubling when you teach any literature from the early 20th century because you know there's going to be a lot in there that you have to heavily couch. Um, but, and contextualize in a way. Yeah. But, but I think there's something really interesting. And then the next sort of, if we're going from Garcés to... John C. Van Dyke, the next person on that list is going to be Edward Abbey, who wrote a book called Desert Solitaire, A Season in the Wilderness. Um, he published this book in 60, 68, and it's about how he, for several summers in a row, went out and lived in Arches um, National, was it a national park at that point? I don't know. The, you know, the Arches National Preserve, Arches National Monument, sorry, Arches National Monument in Utah by himself for two summers, because at that point in the 60s, there was not really tourism to that area yet, especially in the summer. Like there were some tourists who would come through when it was cooler, but nobody wanted to come to Arches, Utah when it was 116 outside in, you know, July. And but the the park, the park system needed somebody to be residing in the National Monument to make sure that, you know, if somebody were to come in to try to camp, somebody would be there to maintain the area. Um, and so he lived there by himself. And he um, was like, I'll do it. Yeah. And again, a, a man who 
seems pretty like a loner, um, like a dreamer, like a poet, but also kind of hard and probably has reserves of anger hiding in there. And a lot wants of angry to men sort in of, the desert. Yeah. And angry wants to men. sort of prove that he can do it almost. Like, I can do it. You don't think you can't do it, but you know what? I can do it. And there's this one part of the book that really struck me where he talks about, so he, he starts seeing rattlesnakes near his trailer. He's got a trailer sort of in the center of the park and there's no one there. Um, so it's just him and there's rattlesnakes and he's like, ah, fuck, like this, this is bad. I don't want to get bit by a rattlesnake. Right. He also doesn't want to kill the rattlesnake because he's like a naturalist, right? He loves the, the wild areas of the desert. So he doesn't want to kill them. He at one point manages to scoop up a rattlesnake with a shovel and take it out um, to another area and drop it. But then he sees either that one or a different one come back. So he figures out that rattlesnakes don't like certain other snakes. Um, and there are other snakes that are not poisonous, that are harmless to humans, but that rattlesnakes will stay away from. So he gets some of those snakes and basically tries to tame them to live in his trailer with them. And there's one specific one that he like lives with and manages to scare the rattlesnakes away. And he sometimes would walk around with it wrapped around his waist Whoa. underneath his shirt. So this is like his pet. Yes. This he, is like he, his cappy. Yes. Um, did, he, did he name it? Did he name his snake No, belt? he didn't name it. And, his belt And then snake? eventually it, it went away, but the rattlesnakes never came back. And then he thought he saw it come back and mate with another snake. And there's this whole creepy, weird, descriptive scene where he's watching these snakes like mate in the sunset light. <laughs> um, <laughs> very, very bizarre. Um, that feels like a scene out of Manhunter. It really does. <laughs> where he's just uh, watching snakes fuck. Yeah, yeah. And and you're like, this is life. It's 1968. Um, I'm in Arches National Monument. And I'm he, watching two snakes fuck. He clearly is also an obsessive because there's like certain trees he won't stop talking about. And he'll be like, I could talk about this one specific juniper for 17 days, you know, like. To no one. Um, to no one, yeah. And then he also goes to on my this belt long snake. rant against the National Park Service where he's like, I hate the National Park Service. Like, this area should never be populated by man. It should only be me, right? Which is also Except this thing. this man. Right, like, the desert attracts these people who are like, this should be wild, but I should see yeah. it. I'm the um, lens. I'm the aperture. And he gets very upset because while he's there one summer, these National Park Service guys come in in a Jeep and they say, we're going to start clearing some area to be a paved road. And we're going to pave uh, it and we're going to put it in here. And he's like, we got to put up these turnpikes. No. Because it's an uh, at that point, it was like unpaved road. So it automatically cut out a lot of tourism because in order to get there, you had to be pretty serious about wanting to see it. Like you had, you to, had have to have, the have right an car. off-road vehicle. Yeah. You had to be willing to camp with no running water, no toilet facilities. Mm-hmm. And then the National Park Service was like, we're going to make it cozy for people. Um, and he got really pissed off. So his book, again, almost 70 years after John C. Van Dyke, but he's saying the same thing. This is the end of the desert. Oh, it's going to be it's I was there ruined. at the end of it. It's going to be ruined now and overrun Untouched. with people. Right. It'll never be the same. Um, and I'm maybe sh- as I'm talking, maybe this is just about white men realizing that <laughs> they're losing their grasp on power <laughs> through the auspices of That's the desert. Um, they probably felt the same way about the desert training center. Arriving, yeah, right. They were probably like, ah, here it goes. Yeah, right. There's the. The Mojave's going to just be a bunch of tanks and a bunch of dudes. And then this is what I'm talking about, though, is those guys don't have the perspective or the hindsight to say, 
Well, the desert just kind of wipes it away. Although mm-hmm. I'm sure that paved road is probably still there. Oh, yeah. I'm sure it's like Highway 62. Yeah, you can Arches. go to Arches National Monument now. But maybe you're driving that paved road go. that they laid down in 19-whatever, 70. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then and then the last person that I want to end this on, not an author, not, not that I know of anyway, but it's um, this man who resides in the town of Ballarat, Death Valley, and it's a former mining town, right? Um, nothing's there anymore. It's a ghost town except for the one man who calls himself the mayor of Ballarat, and his name is Rock Novak. Rock Novak? Yes, Rock Novak. I'm Rock Novak. And um, I'm the mayor. He of lives Death there by Valley. himself. I'm he operates mean. a little trading post. You can see it on Google Maps. He asks for a donation of two dollars per vehicle that stops there. He's got a poster about bats. What do you? What can you get? Um, and like at the a woman poster. in a bikini. You can buy like some drinks there, some soft drinks. Um, <laughs> And he, Some soft drinks. Yeah, he lives there by himself. And, soft drink? And weirdly, he is also very anti-park, um, National Park Service. Um, and very, but in a different way where, so right now, this area that of Ballarat Death Valley is on the edge of an area that they're looking at for potential lithium mining. Oh, and batteries and stuff? a lot of people are very against it because they're like, the, I the, am. the Edward Abbeys and John C. Van Dykes would say like, no lithium mining can come to the desert. This is the end of the I mean, desert. We should this is natural that. beauty. I tend to agree with that, right? We should not well, be lithium mining. Also, like, if the- it's for lithium batteries, fuck you. Right, but... Interestingly enough, Rock Novak is pro-mining because he's like, laws don't apply here. If you want to mine, you can mine. I don't believe we should tell anybody what they can and can't do. It doesn't matter. The desert has been gone forever. If you want to dig it up more, He's like, go it's already ruined? It. Yeah, basically, like, it's so already... So he's just pissed off and miserable out there? Well, let me find... The mayor of Bagarat? What is it? The and mayor he... of Ballarat. Mayor of there's Ballarat? A, there's a really beautiful Atlantic... Why does he hate Atlantic... the National Park Service, though, there's if a... he's like, mine... There's a video on The Atlantic, if you want to go to theatlantic.com, um, called The Mayor of a Ghost Town. Um, and it's a little mini documentary that was made by, oh, I want to call out the filmmakers because I liked it. It's Mickey Totowala and Monica Delgado made this documentary called The Mayor of Ballarat. Ballarat and it's really great. And I think that the short documentary itself is fascinating to watch it's only about five minutes it's edited so well and really beautiful and at one point it just cuts to a shot of him with no explanation saying this truck was owned by charles manson and it cuts to something totally different (laughs) which is great why what was is this that insinuate that charles manson was out there yes uh they actually it is actually a truck owned by charles manson that i think it was at a nearby ranch and they were, this was probably at the same time that other dude was at the Arches. Yes. Manson was like, yes. desert's not going to last, man. Anyway, I would recommend looking go to that, LA. that documentary up, The Mayor of a Ghost Town. It's great. Um, and I don't know if I've said anything or nothing about the desert, but I no, do feel this is great. like it's a fascinating. How old is he? Oh, the mayor. Rock Novak? He's getting How he's old is Rock Novak? Um, he looks old. In the video, but then again, people like in the desert. The people in the desert are like, I'm 28, and they 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 look 87. But he's been there for a long time. They're weathered. Um, I don't know how old he is. Does he live with anybody, or is no, just him? just him? Does he have pets? No, no pets. He had a dog at one point that he talks about, and the dog died, and then he goes on this thing where he's like, "If you have a dog, you got to be prepared to shoot it." 
Oh, God. When it's too he old. He shot his dog. Yeah, he shot his dog when his dog got too old. Because there's no okay. vet out there. You can't take him to the vet. Oh, yeah, that's and true. put him down. So he probably had to do that. He had to kill his own dog. And he's like, you got to be prepared. Um, which shoot is shoot your dog. Yeah, but he seems like a fascinating character. And I We should know. have him on. What? Let's go out there. We yeah, should let's have go. him on. Let's, I'm sure he's we like, could go visit. Your podcast. We could go talk to Does him. Does he have internet? I don't I don't know. Hey Rock, do you have internet? I don't think so. Rocknovak at gmail.com? <laughs> I don't think so. Mayor of Ballarat at gmail.com? Anyway, I'm interested in people who go into the wilderness to see art or Christ or um, <laughs> the dying gasps of a land that once was or to feel guilty or to feel lonely or to feel everything at once or to watch snakes fuck. Um, I'm interested in those people. Do you think like it's like the desert is eternally dying? Yes. It's always dying. It's always almost It's on the gone. verge of death. Yeah. And you're on the verge of death when you're out there. But you're witnessing it. You're witnessing the death of the desert, which is always happening forever. Yeah. All right. So we're going to ask questions about our pragmatic theories about what we've discussed and our fringe theories about what we've discussed. Now, there's not really a particular mystery at the center of what we've discussed on this episode, but I thought of a question for you, which is first, what is your pragmatic theory of why men are angry in the desert? Well, first of all, pragmatically, I would have to say, obviously, my well of what to draw from here of angry white men is not does not represent the fullness of desert experience. I'm actually really interested to know if people out there know of literature about the desert by women in the desert, like a Julian of Norwich style narrative would be rad, because I'm always in for Julian of Norwich. Who isn't? (laughs) Uh, Look, if you read her, just look up Julian of Norwich. Okay. Anyway. um, Well, no, my question, coming back to it, I know it's only a sliver of experiences in the desert, but like why... Specifically, do white men go out into the desert and get angry? I think pragmatically, people go to the ocean because the waves make white noise that allows them to drown out their thoughts and escape. When you go to the desert, what you're doing is you're turning inward and you can only hear yourself. And I think that for most people, that's going to make you angry. Unless you're John Cage, in which case it makes you create 433. But I think that listening to the thoughts of the self in in a landscape that is on its surface appears dead is going to make anyone feel pretty mad. I also think, and maybe this connects a bit with what you were talking about, that... I sure as hell hope so. <laughs> we're way off. Okay, whatever. But I also think that um, being in the desert you realize that death really is just another form of life, that the deadness on the surface of the desert is hiding a million kinds of life that you Teeming didn't understand with was there. But death that is also a change could of make clothes. You, yes, but that could make you angry because it's like, well, my life really means nothing. You know, and that Whoa. sort of solitude that you feel when you look at the stars that makes you feel special can also make you feel, I think, in the desert completely unnecessary to the ecosystem 
Um, All right, I want to come back to the question, though, which was why do (laughs) white men have a prevalence of going into the desert and getting angry? Well, it's only specific. I think they're already angry. The white men who go into the desert are already angry. They're already mad. That's why they're there. Right. They're not there because they're happy people. Right. And I would say that if you take like a random white guy and you send him out into the desert, odds are... He'll die. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. I would say that maybe he's just going to, after after a while, get pissed off. I think... Because uh, you're talking about being alone with your own thoughts. I mean, look, I don't mean to judge a whole group of people, but let's just do it. I would also say that... Maybe think, maybe we're talking about like a, a, a particularly deeply westernized, uh, close-minded, like, um, you know, like send send like the dad of a friend you knew in high school out to the desert for like, and not to like a <laughs> national park camping site to like, sure. hey, we'll come pick you up in four days. Like, that's not, I feel like that's not going to go well. No, it's not going to go well at all. And, and I also feel like angry people are drawn to the desert because because of the isolation it provides and because of the ability to be angry with no specific target you know and there's um, like there's like an oblivion quality to yes, it yes exactly okay so well, i mean i feel like you've already done this but <laughs> with all the weird stuff you've said just now but <laughs> your fringe theory about why why guys go out into the desert and get angry i think the aliens has to be okay. the fringe theory, right? right? I mean, like, if you think about the Integratron, no. right? The guy who built it, you know, aliens from Venus. Yeah, but his mind plan. was already preyed upon I by think there's some also, sort of sickness. Sure. I think fringe theory-wise, there's some kind of weird fucking energy out in the desert, man. Like, there's yeah. some kind of weird geological shit going down. Like, like the vortexes in yes. Sedona? Yes, and yeah. if you go to Arches National Monument, like one thing that Edward Abbey talks about a lot is the way that these stones are balanced in a way that makes no sense and seems impossible, and you're just waiting for them to fall and collapse, and somehow they're still standing through all these strange erosions. Like, yeah, there's something geological, magnetic, um, bizarre about the energy in the desert that if you believe in that stuff with, you know, crystals and energy and it like it could alter your mind. I don't know. I also think that uh, it's like a, that 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 speaks to a, something you can't control. Yes. Right. So if you send if a white guy can't control something, typically he gets pissed off. Uh huh. For sure. Okay. So we'll okay. talk about my. Yeah, I want to hear more about yours. What is your what is your pragmatic theory about the disappearance of well I guess there's two things the disappearance of the airport is really mm-hmm. interesting to me what's yeah. the pragmatic theory of that that's the thing that I got on hung up on was a rice uh, army airfield why did it disappear like yeah, that's why weird why also I mean okay so they narrowed it down what's amazing is people state it's between three years 1955 to 1958 right somewhere in there so it was like was it over the duration of that time where something where it just kind of degraded and disappeared and like well but like pragmatically it's somebody a group of people were like this is a worthless enterprise like we don't need to take off and land from here this is who cares no one's gonna why are we gonna land in rice california what are we, and then we're gonna drive to 29 palms and do what Right. Right? Unless you live there, especially back then, right? Be like, oh, why do I need to do this? Mm-hmm. But then I think about, like, even in the pragmatic thing, there was, there would have to have been 
the last person to drive away mm. from Rice Army Airfield. Yeah. There would be. Like, there has to be one person who got in their car and was like, ah, I'm not going to go in tomorrow. Yeah. yeah. And, and, that, and then <laughs> no one did. Like, right? And it was just, and then the wind just like blew until the windows kind of fell apart and then the buildings were just kind of like, sure. and when, when was it raised? Was it bulldozed? Or did it just kind of dilapidate and fall apart like the wood? Because the cement foundations are there. So I mm. mean, was it bulldozed? Hmm. I don't know if it would be bulldozed because were they just wood structures? Were they like, I would just take these down? Like, I, I don't know. I bet the army probably dismantled the barracks and stuff. But like the airstrip is there. So it's not like they bulldozed the airstrip. That's what you would bulldoze. If you're going to go bulldoze right. something and be like, ah, it's an airstrip. Let's go bulldoze the airstrip. But the airstrip is out there. Hmm. There's pieces of it. So that's weird. Even in the pragmatic version, like I think of the the last person to drive away and be like, "Man, is anyone ever going to fly out of here again?" I don't know. So you and then you, the answer you was don't no. Think they would like sh- they shut it down. Oh yeah, I mean like formally? some people were like, like okay, "Okay, guys, we're, we're going to lock the gates." Last day. Lock the gates. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and this is it. But and then they were like, "Later, Bill." Yeah. See you, Fred. Uh, but then, what happened? What, what, why did? Why is the buildings? Okay, why well, are the buildings? What's your, what's your fringe theory? Okay, the fringe theory is aliens. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I feel like my fringe theory is that in the desert you can't make anything permanent. Hmm. No matter how hard you try, you put something, you put a flag in the ground in the desert, and that that's just it's just not going to last. Even if it's no, I, and I, by the way, I don't mean like nature doing it. Nature's no, I know allowed, what you mean. but like man, humans going out there and being like, "I'm going to put an army base," or "I'm going to let's go dance in the desert," you know, or or right. "I'm going to build a alien contact device called the Integratron." Like eventually, that shit's not gonna right. And I feel like the desert. You were talking about the desert being overrun. I feel like eventually, especially now with climate change, the desert is kind of like the thing that's just going to grow over the earth. Where if you, you look at it from, you know, the International Space Station and the continents are all brown. Mm. I, so I feel I like, like there's some sort of like uh, I mean, I don't like it, but energy. The desert has some sort of um, uh, weathering force beyond mm-hmm. nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, you think about the sand being like pieces of meteors, you know, like... Pre-solar sediment. Yeah, exactly. Well, I was going to say, though, don't you think another fringe theory could be that that airport was operated by the CIA? Oh, that's interesting. So a conspiracy theory. You go the other direction and they were like, this is what it is, and then they shut it down. That was a CIA program. Where they were like, it's a a private airport, but like, not really. It feels like CIA to me. You were in the CIA. Mm Mm-hmm, shortly. Do you want to... Let's not go into that. I, no, I, too late. We can't. I, I uh, Also, I, I forgot. I don't even know if I told you this, but in um, I, you know I want my ashes scattered in Joshua Tree. You didn't tell me that. It's in my will, in the closet over there. <laughs> Great. It the says, one that you showed me one day when I came home from work and you were like, got you the had will it done. laid out in front of the microwave. Yeah. And then yeah. our friends came over to have dinner and I was like, hey, by the way, can you sign these two documents? Was, and they just witnessed my will. It was troubling. Well, in there are my internment wishes, and one of them thing is to put scatter my ashes in Joshua Tree. I'll do that. A pinch of ashes at Wrigley Field. Oh my God! If you can manage get it, on a fucking plane. 
I'll well, drive. There. Well, I don't. How old fly. am I? I don't know. What is this? Two weeks from now? I hope not. You know what I mean? Like this is. I don't know. No, I don't you like know, flying in general. You try to though. try to go with the the, the It's a hundred days from I'm my send death. One of our kids. This is in there. A hundred okay. days from my death. To so you scatter my ashes in Joshua Tree. A hundred days after my death, you go take a pinch of it, and you put it in Wrigley Field. It's a Buddhist tradition. Can I give it to someone else? Well, we're married, so that's super <laughs> fucked up. I mean, you can have one of our sons do it. Like, I that's don't want to do like, it. One like, of the kids. You, it, it's 100 days or, this is okay. literally in there. It's 100 days after my death or the closest home game to that date. Okay, great. <laughs> great. I'll make it happen for you, friend. So one day I'll be blowing around out there with I the old Glenn Miller music and the, 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 the missionary guy and his, his bone dust. and I love it. I love it. Um, okay, so that's our episode for, for now. For now, forever. For Fuck now. It. This is done. Could add uh, to it. Close the book on the desert. We figured it out. Um, next episode, our obsessive topic. I'm very excited about this. Me too. We're going to really switch gears. We're going to talk about Captain James Tiberius Kirk. We're not doing Star Trek. Very We're not exciting. doing an episode. We're talking about Captain James T. Motherfucking Kirk. Strap in. Yeah, because we've been watching Star Trek six nights a week in quarantine. We've discovered it. I've rediscovered it. I watched it as a kid, and it's on. We watch it with our kids. We make fun of it. We also love it. And we cannot get enough of Captain Kirk. We just put a picture of Captain Kirk in our house. What the freak were we thinking? We're losing our minds. So we're going to do Captain Kirk on our next episode. (laughs) It's going to be awesome. This episode was so long. The Captain Kirk episode should be like a two-parter. I know. I feel like Captain Kirk is going to be six hours each. Two parts. Be like in the, and it'll say on I the have a lot to say about download Captain Kirk. of and it, no in like but, no we'll we'll touch on William Shatner. Sure, I mean he's integral to Captain, Captain Kirk. Kirk is really, and, the but character we're gonna of go Kirk. deep on the character now. And, and it's not gonna be biographical or any of that crap. It's gonna be like, what is this man? What is this person? And I had a question for you. Okay, you know, we'll talk about it obviously in the next episode. But sure. like, are we doing the movies? Oh, I haven't seen any of the movies. Well, see, I've seen some of the. I've seen all I mean, the movies I've seen actually. The but, second movie, but I don't remember it. But at it, all. It, like, that's a different guy. So we're going to focus. Talk about it. Well, we're going to focus on the original series. Gold sure. shirt. Yes. Cool hair. Water buffalo masculinity. Mm-hmm. Captain Kirk. Let's do it. Okay, we'll see you next time. I love you. I love you too. You've been listening to Spores, Molds, and Fungus, a podcast hosted by Chris Cantwell and me, Elizabeth Cantwell. Follow us respectively on Twitter. Chris is at IfYouCantwell, and I'm at ECCantwell. We have Instagram, but that's not for you. Stay away from us. If you have any theories or obsessions on the desert, or if you've got anything else you might be obsessing over, shoot us an email at sporespodcast at gmail.com. See you next week, and until then, happy ruminations.